Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. This month we'll be speaking with Jenny Martin, recently become chair of Bus Users UK. Some of the things we'll be discussing include how, as experts in the transit sector, the way we communicate is failing to cut through to the media, and as a result, that often means that when we do public outreach and assessment from members of the community, they don't really understand what it is we're trying to do, either with active transport or low-traffic neighbourhoods or upgrades to the bus system, and how we might need to change that. Without further ado, let's hear from Jenny. Now, let's get talking. So, welcome to Transit Voices. Today, Jenny Martin. Thank you so much for coming to join us with such an amazing career in transit. And especially recently, you've been covered in various gongs and awards. You've been for so many years, Secretary General at the ITS. You're a board member for things like the National Highways Research and Innovation Group and Ambassador for the ITS Nationals and trustee on the Advisory Council for Transport Safety, something so close to my heart, and I hope we talk about that a bit later. Of course, you've just been appointed Chair of Bus Users UK, such an important role, and especially in the current climate, important thing to be pushed and defended. But uh, you also received a gong, uh, an award from the King this year, didn't you? An MBE in the New Year's Honours list. That's incredible to see both our industry recognised, but also your your work and example all these years so far. We can see the highlight at the uh, the top of your career where you are now and the impact you're having now, but you know everybody getting into transport through different routes before they they decide this is a nice place to be. Can you just give us a bit of an idea, Jenny, how you got into transit in the first place and, and, and the journey that's, that's brought you to the impact you're having today? Thank you, Ben, and, and thank you very much for inviting me. And it's it's a great pleasure to to be here, mainly through my role with bus users, but as you know, as you name checked, also many other organisations, CLT, PACTS, BSI, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How I got into transit, like probably a lot of other people, really quite accidentally. I studied history at uh, university simply because that's what I was interested in. And uh, most people at that time in the 80s came out of that and either did a management accountancy qualification and got very rich in the city, or if they were slightly less mercenary in their outlook, uh, they went into teaching. And I knew very much that that was neither of those routes were for me. I've, I've never been motivated by money. And my father is a teacher, so I, I'd had 20 years of, of finding out that that was not something I wanted to do. So I just applied for jobs and I was accepted onto the graduate training scheme of British Rail, the, the then state-run operator of, of the Railways of Britain. And uh, that was really it. Because of my background, obviously, I wasn't doing anything highly technical or, or qualified with British Rail. I worked for the station catering uh, on uh, people my age remember things like Travellers Fair we had our own burger bar the the Casey Jones these are names which will make older people smile and I got into running their shop fitting schemes so it's only very recently that the last cafes and upper crusts and what have you built by me have disappeared from the stations because obviously there's there's a cycle in this I did the previous but two I think incarnation of the Euston Food Court which is probably my, my biggest job but I, I just came to love the railways being a, a very small part of, of the team that made rail travel happen really really fascinated me and uh, 
I went from there to to work for the Corporation of London as uh, the technical assistant to the city engineer. He he was that's such a grand position; it doesn't exist anymore. There aren't any city engineers anymore. But he had two assistants: uh, the traditional PA and then the technical assistant, which was me. And working there for a couple of years in the mid nineties was fascinating. You will laugh when I tell you that Crossrail was already an old project in that office. It was we had engineers who'd been working on trying to make Crosswell happen for the previous 10, 15 years. And that would not surprise know. me in the least. The, you know, infrastructure like this is is so long in the in the in the gestation period, but the impact and the period of time that it's then enjoyed should be in the hundreds of years. Getting the land in the first place to to put railways and uh, and permanent infrastructure on takes a long time. But if you're telling me it was old at 15 years, I'm thinking that sounds quick. <laughs> and then it opened 25 years later. Yeah. And I think that's uh, it's a function of democracy as much, much as anything else, mm. as ordinary people have got more and more of a voice in how we do things, running things like railways and motorways through swathes of, of land has become harder and harder. I used to d- deal quite a lot with incoming Chinese delegations in the ITS area. And of course, in, in China, to, you know, to simplify matters, but in China, you draw a line on a map and that's where you stick your motorway or railway line. And uh, the officials used to be quite bemused by the, the way we carried on here. And I, certainly on occasion, one of them would say to us that, but how do you ever get anything done? Well, I think that we've we've gone too far the wrong way, which is we give disproportionate weight to those people who turn up at you know community outreach and, and, and other sort of situations. And what we don't do is try to take a representative weighted view of different demographics and and stakeholder representatives across the board. And uh, you know, if, if, it, if you're looking at planning permission uh, hearings or, or even you know uh, active transport, you get a disproportionate view from those people who can attend sessions in the middle of the working day. So the corporate world doesn't rely on doing a Vox Pops uh, in the middle of town or in the middle of a, a town hall uh, during the working day. The corporate world will hire a um, survey company to get representatives from employed, young family and re- uh, retired and you know other groups and say, right, I, I paid in some cases people to give me time to give their opinions on these matters. I have now given you a weighted according to the percentage of the population in this geographic area. These are the views coming from people who have jobs. Here are the views from people who are sole traders, who are uh, commercial property runners. And these are the views of the retired. And you should consider those in these proportions to the, the amount of population, but also their needs for this transport. And not just, you know, allow the, the NIMBY voice to stop you doing everything every time. And this is a huge problem in the USA and uh, I believe here as well. And I, I just think we need to, but I, I don't know how much of that you've, you've seen. And I think you, you, you're probably in some of the places to try and maybe steer a change in the outreach. It's a subject very close to my heart. I mean, we, we can see it playing out now in, in London with the ULES debate, if I can mm. dignify it with calling it a debate. Apparently, the the affected vehicles are in the region of about 200,000. That's a tiny number mm. for the sheer amount of noise. I am very sympathetic towards the people who are uh, tradespeople 
people, electricians, plumbers. Uh, you can't go on public transport with a new boiler. You, you'll do yourself a, a mischief. Some of them work to very tight margins and are by no means wealthy, and the ULIS will be an issue for them. But that's not really the people we're hearing from. Where I live, the, the loudest shouting is from grandparents doing school runs. And I'm like, seriously, we the, the amount of buses in my area of East London is, uh, yeah, it, it's massive. You, you can't mm. move for buses. And uh, of course, these grandparents, by definition, travel on the buses for free. So do the grandchildren. And really, on the other side, I mean, because of where I lived and work my li- uh, all my life, uh, I suspect that air pollution from transport will probably cost me a couple of years of healthy life at the end of my life. And that we don't hear from those voices. The a great respect to to the the lady from South London, the the mother of the young girl who, who very tragically died from asthma, mm. where the the coroner accepted that that was caused by how they she'd lived her whole short life very close to the South Circular and been very badly affected by pollution. So no fair play. Then we did hear voices of people who'd been directly affected, but that's rare. And the person who's being mildly inconvenienced seems to be far louder than the people whose health is being affected. And again, as I say, the people who really will take an economic hit from this, possibly even be put out of business, we're not hearing so much from them. So the the whole thing is really quite skewed. The media, really, they're rewarded for putting extreme views and provocative views out there, rather than reasoned debate and middle-of-the-road compromise arguments or, or conclusions. And so, you know, you were pointing out the other day, I think, that one of the issues with smart motorways or with low traffic networks is, to paraphrase Terry Pratchett, a lie will have gone round the world before the truth has got its boots on. For every complaint in the media that low traffic networks, LTNs, are the government trying to prevent anybody moving around the city, uh, the idea that a 15 minute, you know, nobody should go further than 15 minutes from where they are. And people thinking this is a kind of you will be asked to show your papers when you try and cross boundaries between a city is like nobody has ever suggested that. But then you, you've pointed out that the the effective communication of what a low traffic network or a 15 minute, minute city is hasn't been communicated across. And it, it is hard to, to 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 get the cut through with the, the media message that uh 15 minute city is trying to say we want to have good enough travel options around the city that you can get to all the major things you need within 15 minutes. And the idea of low traffic networks is not to say you can't travel anywhere by car and not to say that disabled people cannot use a car if that's the only practical thing. And often the disabled are misused as an example of why to allow a disabled person to use a car, you have to use, let everybody use a car. I first got interested in that or sort of noticed it with, with when the smart motorway debates kicked off, which is quite quite a long way time ago now. Definitely, I do feel very strongly that we in the sector do not communicate with the people who at the end of the day are our customers. I mean, they're very slightly different in the bus sector, but in, in big chunks of the transport sector, you are directly spending taxpayers' money. That's you know, that's what pays your bills at the end of the day. That's where your shareholders make their profit. And yet we seem to take almost a, a lofty attitude to that we shouldn't communicate with these people. Or if we do communicate, we communicate in our own language and through our own channels instead of communicating in their language and through their channels as, you know, 
anybody with any understanding of PR and marketing knows that is what you have to do. And then we wonder why perfectly good and well-meant initiatives like 50 Minutes It's It's and LTNs end up, as you say, I mean, I have no idea how this happened, but there are ordinary people out there who think that the point of 50 Minute Cities is to, as you say, lock us down into small cells of, of uh, the areas where we live. Yeah, maybe we need to take a, a leaf out of Chrissy Dittmore's book and uh, make some catchy songs about each of these things to to, to cut through. And, you know, as well as, as well as as transport executives turning up to receive the difficult questions, sometimes maybe we need to make a bit more of a circus about the good stuff. It's not something that will happen passively. It's It, it takes engagement and excitement. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that masabi has been very lucky in is we have the, this force of nature called James Gooch, who who puts such energy into, into marketing and, and driving messages across. And is one of the cornerstones of commercial products is to, is to have a, an engaged and active and imaginative public messaging. Some of the most successful new transport initiatives come with branding, come with activity. And uh, I love that some of our transit agencies and bus operators in the USA share their homework with each other and say, you know, when we did capping, this is the material we use to get that message across. Use my homework when you launch it in your area, because we're not competing. Here's something that really worked and cut through. I think road pricing is, I think, maybe the poster boy for this sort of thing. Definitely, it's to me, it's the best example of really, really abysmal communication and, and no communication because people are not stupid. My stock example, when it comes up and it comes up a lot, when I talk to people outside the sector about it, I say, okay, so what if driving a car was like EasyJet? That if you wish to drive down Park Lane at eight in the morning, it will cost you 50 quid, even though it's less than a mile. If you want to drive around the lanes of Norfolk, where you are the only car for miles around, it will be free. And I have never had anyone say, that's a bad idea. Everybody says, yeah, that would be really fair. It's us not communicating in the way I just did. And to be fair, I think there's also, we, we who advocate for it, do it from a point of view that it will be fiscally neutral, more or less. But I, I think a lot of citizens don't trust the Treasury and they don't trust government to make it fiscally neutral. But again, if government went out and message along the lines of that, the final pot of money collected will be the same. It's just that it will who contributes will be spread out according to the time of day, the size of the vehicle, the polluting nature of the vehicle, how many people are in the vehicle, how busy the network is where you're using it. Then I think it is acceptable. Well, moving on to another topic, um, one of the things brought up by uh, Dal Kalirai, who works in one of the women in transport chapters, and uh, a topic that's very important to a lot of bus users is around safety, the feeling of safety on public transport. And from your chair of Bus Users UK, what are the sort of interventions and activities that you've you've seen tried to improve the feeling of safety, especially on the sort of later night or, or less used bus routes for vulnerable bus users? I'd like to start by really recommending Transport Scotland. If, if you haven't come across it, they've just in the last month or so put out a report on the safety of women on public transport. They've taken a really interesting approach. It's 
entirely led by what their female sample said to them. So a lot of individual testimonies and stories and a bit of exposition by whoever put it together in between, but really it leads with the women's stories. I think it's actually a really good approach. So anyone who's interested in that should definitely look at that. They talk about how enforcement and policing has retreated from their spaces and they don't see it as a good thing. Just to be specific, this is if there's an incident, they have a feeling that even if they report it, there will not be a police presence. There will not be a response which is going to meaningfully change their feeling of safety, either at the time or after. Absolutely. Uh, and they it, they do specifically say, and this is you know my personal experience as well, so they don't report it. There, there were testimonies from people who actually were, who are transit workers, saying that when they can sense that something's going to blow up, uh, usually involving alcohol or lack of the, the appropriate ticket, they know that the police will not come if they call, so they walk out of the situation for their own safety. And, I mean, I, I myself have been saying for years that, frankly, I don't care. You know, my, my tube station out on the eastern end of the district line, which is very, very little used late at night, I don't care that there's going to be CCTV of me being assaulted on there, that someone in the palestra, TFLHQ, might even be watching in real time. It won't make my injuries any less and it won't make me any happier. But going back to actually answering your question, I, I think we, we have a really good understanding of what works. And it, it's things like you know, starting at the bus stop, it needs to be well lit. If it's been vandalised, which sadly does happen, that needs to be fixed pretty quickly. Again, as is well known, the, the issue with safety on transit is not just you actually being attacked or, or assaulted, it's also the perception. If you feel unsafe, that makes it a really unpleasant experience and you're far less likely to use that mode, you'll do something else. So the stop needs to be well lit and in good condition and it needs to be placed in a sensible position. You, we're now starting to talk about electric vehicle charging points and you know the, the geniuses who put them in the darkest, furthest away corner of the car park. No doubt thinking that, well, we put it here because no one really likes to park here, so it won't be taken away from anyone else who's actually just shopping or doing whatever yeah. they're doing. There's a wonderful group that's actually putting together a safety rating for every public EV charging point saying, is it lit? Are there any other people around it or is it in an area that, that is not overlooked? Is it possible to get in and out of the vehicle if you're disabled and actually access the charger and everything else? Because, you know, a lot of these weren't designed. They were, as you say, put in the, the least wanted and the least trafficked bit of uh, the, the back of a petrol station or the back of a, a supermarket where nobody really goes because... They were done before there was real public demand or a public awareness of the value of it. And that's all switching around now. And a, a lot of these have to be ripped out and moved to different places to make them fit for purpose as a public service. But it's certainly something where for a lot of uh, vulnerable users, public charging is 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 unnecessarily scary. And, and putting together, you know, your, your whole tra transport use from walking to it. I mean, in the USA, there's barely any uh, pavements, any footways to get you to some of these, you know, even if there is a, a bus stop with concrete and a, a chair, a, a chair and a seat and a, a cover, often there's there's nothing but scrubland either side of it and uh, no way of crossing the, the six lane freeway to get from one side to the other. A lot of people want to ride on the bus all the way to the end of the line 
come back and go the other way just because that's the safest way to cross the road. That's insane. So this whole making the whole of the public transport journey work together makes, you know, needs to be done. And uh, there was a, a piece I was reading the other day where somebody was saying, sometimes the public transport operator has to look outside of their box and go over the wall and say, well, actually, we are going to get involved in litter. We are going to get involved in getting the pavements done. It's not our department as the bus operator, but as a bus operator, we can't achieve what we want to achieve for the community unless we get involved in other community issues, in other road design and other other kind of experience design pieces. And at least where, in theory, the bus operations are part of local government through a circuitous route, there should be more of a join up on, 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 on this infrastructure linking together. Absolutely. And I think that sort of mirrors other things we've said during this conversation that it's not good enough to come at it with a point of view. Oh, I run buses. I'm a bus operator. That's it. No, that, I don't need to do anything else. And the, so going back to the thing with the bus stops, yeah, they're even where they're placed, not just that the environment around them is salubrious and, and doesn't look dangerous. How are people supposed to get to them? Play so much part in, in terms of safety. And if at all possible, they need to be na- near somewhere where people are present and move around, because I think that mm. that gives you a far greater perception of safety. And, and I think, I mean, I'm no criminologist, but I would have thought also actual safety. Mm. My own experience, I've been using public transport around London for 30 plus years now. Never had a single serious bad experience. I have had in my life one proper bad experience involving public transport where you know, to the point that the police were involved and the person went to court eventually. But that was in rural Essex. People being around is it's not just something that makes you feel safer. It's something that actually makes you safer full stop. So I think that's really important. Well, I think almost there's a connection there that if you're running fixed line bus services and there's not a lot of people around and there's not a lot of people on the bus, then maybe fixed route bus services is not the right answer at that time of day in that area. And it would have been much safer to, and some of the US operators are doing this, they subsidize private ride hail in transit deserts and outside of service hours so that people who are coming home from shift work or anything else, they've got safe ways to travel around, living a car optional life not having to own a car in which to safely move around. And where you're seeing, oh, this bus has only got one or two people on it, or it's only coming once every now and then, and there's nobody at this stop. Well, asking someone to sit at that stop and wait for an empty bus is not going to be safe while they wait or safe while they're on the bus. The answer is they they should be given subsidised ride hail. Has anybody in the United Kingdom been doing trials of blending in subsidised ride hail uh, where fixed route bus maybe is is not financially or from a safety point of view viable at those times of night or that the frequency is just not a service not that i'm aware of and, and i think it's it, it's something that we really should look at because yes other countries do do it i remember mm. when the stockholm brought in their congestion charge you know they were pioneers before they even started the trial phase of the road pricing they made some very great improvements to public transport to make sure that there was a genuine, viable, affordable alternative for people who no longer might wish to drive into Stockholm once the charge was in place. And I don't even know the English word for this. The Swedish word is stumbus. And it's not 
BRT, Bus Rapid Transit, the point of it is that it runs on a segregated area of the road or anything. The point about it is that it has very few stops. In, in the USA, that would be an express bus. Express bus, perhaps, is a good way. So, the, so the yeah, not, not it, stopping every two feet. But the point about it was, I mean, that that's something that was already present in the Stockholm region, but they expanded it. But what they did specifically did was they really increased the feeder routes. Uh, those feeder routes weren't private hire. They were other buses, but often smaller buses. But they mm-hmm. really increased the frequency. And that was very popular. And this is now 20 years ago. And why aren't we looking more at that here in the UK? Well, that, that, that is something that we look, we've look we looked at at Masabi a few times, especially with commuters, which is this is sort of feeder thing. And it, it plays into the uh, the subsidised ride hail, which is to use the, the ride hail or shared ride hail for commuter clock to bring mm-hmm. people on the feeder routes to the main uh, rapid transit ingress points, whether that's a commuter rail line or a, a BRT or an express bus route. And so you're not paying during peak times of day to bring people the whole way, but you're getting them in and out of the egress points. And then even late at night in London, you could still be running arterial high frequency fixed route buses going in and out of the major things. But then you you have you have the subsidized ride hail to get you those low density areas where it doesn't make any sense for your feeder routes to still be running at that time of day to those areas. And that feels like something where you're not giving everybody a taxi everywhere they want to go, but you are giving people reasonable, safe access to a place that has lots of people, to a place that actually financially and practically makes sense to have well-lit, covered bus routes and high-frequency buses which are going up and out without the implication that they should stop every 150 metres. And it's not service where the average bus speed is six miles an hour. It's, it's not, not very useful. You really need to stop some routes. Less is often more. Before we, we wrap up, I, I'd love to get your takes, uh, every every guest we ask this, on what of all the concepts, ideas, technologies you think at the moment for the industry is your pick as boondoggle, the white elephant, the thing that's stealing all the oxygen in the room and it just doesn't have enough impact to justify it. What would you pick? Right. So I'm not going to say mobility as a service because I understand that all your guests say mobility. Everybody as... says that. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly heard... heard uh... Yes, I think your immediate previous guest, uh, Daljit Kalirai, demolish it extremely eloquently. So no, I'm not going to say that. I, I think what I'll pick is more generally the way we talk about rural transport and living car-free in rural areas. We are so muddled about that in many different ways. First of all, we don't seem to be able to properly segregate it from living in urban centres and public transport in urban centres. The two could not be more difficult scenario, more different scenarios. Actually, that was probably a, an appropriate Freudian slip. It's also very difficult. We, we seem to have got ourselves into a place where we vaguely acknowledge that it should be possible to live car-free in rural areas. We understand the economic impossibility of running urban-style bus networks out there. We vaguely talk a bit about it. DRT, demand responsive transport, but we're not at all engaged with the fact that if you're doing normal things like going to a workplace or going to college or going to a hospital appointment, something that varies 30 minutes either way is absolutely no good to you. I personally think we first of all we need to talk honestly about what can and can't happen in rural areas. I think we we need to accept that it should be possible to live car free in rural areas. Teenagers and older people and people who have other reasons why they, they can't drive or, or simply don't wish to drive 
should be able to live rurally if they so wish. I, I think a big part of the answer is community-based transport. And as you know, to run community based bus style services is really hard because the regulatory framework treats you as if you were stagecoach or a Reba and things get really difficult for you. I have lots of ideas of my own and we haven't got time to cover that here. But yeah, we, we need to reframe how we talk about non-car transport in rural areas. And actually, perhaps the first thing we need to do, even those of us who love transit above all other things, is accept that for the vast majority of people in rural areas, a private car is the answer. And that long after we faced out the use of the private car in urban areas, where in my opinion, it's usually not at all appropriate, we need to understand that in rural areas, it needs to persist. So that would be, I can't remember the, 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 the funny the word you had for it. So your boondoggle, your boondoggle is, 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 is conflating rural public transit use with anything in urban and suburban. Yeah, and, and not taking enough of a realistic view of what the solutions might be. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. And what about what about your underdog? Who's what's the idea or the uh, the the uh, the technology that you think should be given a bit more attention? I haven't picked anything to do with technology. The one thing I would want to be have elevated far more than it is now is the way we design our transport networks and the way we take decisions about them, which needs to be far more inclusive, and the people who take part in it need to be far more varied. So it, it's my old favourite, the diverse workforce. It really is. And I think it's particularly to the fore. Well, actually, it's to, it's to the fore both in, in road safety and in, in bus that the people who get a raw deal in either are very often from lower socioeconomic groups. And the people who do the work and take the decisions and design the systems very rarely are. But when I first got interested in, in the diversity in the workforce, which was 10, 15 years ago, an American professor told me, and at the time I was a bit shocked by this, but now I know he's absolutely right. He said the hardest of all the challenges around inclusion and diversity, the hardest one is class. He didn't use the word class because he was American, but as a British person, we would say class, that long after you've managed to include women and disabled people and people of colour and people of different religions and so on and so forth, you will still be dragging on the class issue. And I do think both in road safety and in bus and many other walks of life as well, that's what we need to improve. The people who design the services and, you know, in, in, in the case of Masabi, the the very important technologies that underpin them. The people who design them and decide how they're going to be implemented need to be representative of the users. And certainly on bus, that means from working class backgrounds. It really does. And we need we need to talk far more about that and we need to put far more effort into it. Very good. And uh, in terms of digital divide, how 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 real is the digital divide, especially down at that the, the class side? Because the digital divide from an age point of view is often overstated. You know, my experience of, of, of elderly relatives is, is that they would be the first to know when the broadband has gone down because it is such an important part of things, they, the communities they engage with and the activities that they, they, they make use of. But from a class point of view, is digital divide still a very important barrier in terms of making use of new ITS and, and bus timetabling, bus real time, which has moved very much into a digital domain. How much of an issue does that still remain? 
it's a really interesting topic and uh, somebody called Chris Beret, who actually might also be a good subject for you, uh, who works for Social Research Associates. She's done some really good work on the fact that digital exclusion, is, it's not at all the way we lazily assume that it's people on low income and it's old people. If we're really being academic about this, we might throw in disabled people. None of this, it's not true at all. The people who are digitally excluded are really sort of peppered about and are in all different walks of life. Uh, my, my take on this is that it, it's true. It, it's we, we are now down to 6% of the population who've never, ever used the internet. And smartphone penetration is up to 90%. So both those things tell us that it's certainly, it's not at all simply a class issue, far, far more than 10% of British people are working class. So that, that's not the case at all. I, I think my, my take on this is that we have we have 12 million people who are sort of maybe partially connected, but who are deemed to not be digitally capable enough to make full use of the of, of the different things that they need to do. I am trying to stop talking about this as a transport issue because to me it's far more important that we talk about it as a civic societal issue because mm. we're now at the point where if you're not digitally competent, it's impossible for you to be a fully functioning citizen. Registering your children for school, dealing with the NHS, the NHS, the GP, my GP surgery is now imposing apps on us. They don't want us to turn up in the surgery anymore. They want us on the app or email if we really have to. You you are so excluded if you if you're not digitally included that we should talk about it as a whole society wide issue. And I've started thinking about there was a point in our history, probably maybe around the turn of the 18th century, when we as a society decided that citizens were expected to be able to read and write. And we started with fairly rudimentary, but getting better and better forms of universal education. And now we're at a point where you telling the authorities that you're very sorry, but you can't participate, you can't apply for the benefit you need, or you can't register your child for school because you can't read and write. It won't wash at all. The authorities will just send you away and say, well, that is entirely your problem, Ben. You can't read and write. It's on you. You can't have the services. This is how we now need to approach digital inclusion. We need to decide that actually we want all our citizens to be digitally included. That's how they're going to play the full part. So we are going to make that happen by education and training and, if need be, by giving out basic but free devices. Like, you know, you, you don't have to pay for your child to learn to le read and write. Maybe we should adopt the same approach to make sure that everyone's digitally included. Mm. That's a really, really excellent way of putting it. Thanks very much, Jenny. Before you go, uh, who who would you uh, just raise up as a, another voice that we should we should get onto the show and uh, uh, find their opinion? If I had to nominate one person, then then it would be Carol Schweiger from from the US, whose experience in in the transit sector is longer than mine, if such a thing were possible. <laughs> who's very passionate, very knowledgeable, and both about the the technology about the actual services and about the inclusion bit. So if I had to choose one person, I would choose Carol. Brilliant. Well, get in touch with Carol then. Thank you so much for coming on today with us, Jenny. It's been a really educational set of topics that we've gone through and great to hear some of your solutions to some of these. I certainly hope they gain 
traction and get more impact on the ground. I'm excited to see what you'll be uh, doing next in terms of Bus Users UK. It's a very difficult time for bus to lobby and get the funding back and get it to be improved in our towns to let people have more of a car optional life, excluding rural, but in the towns and urban centres. And uh, I think that has to be a very real part of how we move forward. I look forward to meeting you up in person again the next few trade shows. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Have a good day. So there you have it. Thank you so much to Jenny Martin. Of course, really good to get into some of the topics about how to improve the cut through of messaging to the public without really delivering that message. It's going to be difficult for the industry to get the support for the big changes we want to make to cities and our public transport. And I love her picks for boondoggle of really accepting the differences in rural transport and trying to find ways to make it easier for people to operate bridge services in rural transport and of course getting a more diverse workforce involved in designing transit and I really love her take on digital divide we shouldn't be accepting the digital divide we should be reaching out and trying to educate people who still aren't digital because they're excluded from so much of civic life if they can't make use of digital technology. Do tune in next month and think about subscribing so that you don't miss the next episode of Transit Voices. And I'll speak to you soon. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.